Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Unfortunately, Bishop Barron is out of the studio the next couple weeks. He'll be back in right after the new year. But instead of leaving you hanging, we wanted to share with you a clip from the classic Catholicism series all about the Christmas story. Christmas is right around the corner, and then we get to celebrate the great season of Christmas for several days. But how many Christmas cards and nativity scenes have you seen presenting the baby Jesus as soft and saccharine? Well, that's not how the Bible describes him. There, Jesus is presented as a warrior king, one who comes with a heavenly army to battle against the dark powers of the world. So we hope you enjoy this clip of Bishop Barron exploring the many facets of that baby king and the great victory that he ultimately won on the cross. So enjoy and Merry Christmas. Our first glimpse of Jesus the fighter is at Bethlehem in the stable over which the Church of the Nativity stands today. The Christmas story is not just a charming tale we tell to children. It's full of this motif of Jesus the warrior, the one who's come to fight. C.S. Lewis, the great English writer, said that Jesus came so quietly in this unobtrusive way because he was meant to slip clandestinely behind enemy lines. account of the nativity, we see these warrior motifs quite clearly. How does that story open up? By invoking two of the most powerful people of the time. It said, while Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and when Caesar Augustus was the king of the world, a census was called. Quirinius, Caesar Augustus, two of the most prominent, powerful people in the ancient world. Well, that's how you'd expect great poems and stories in the ancient world to begin, by invoking the high and mighty. But then St. Luke pulls the rug out from under us because he says, my story is not primarily about them. My story is about this little couple making their way from one dusty outpost of Augustus' empire to another, about Mary and Joseph coming here to Bethlehem. And the story will unfold now as a tale of two emperors, Augustus in Rome and the true and new emperor, Christ Jesus. We hear that Mary came to Bethlehem, to this place. There was no room at the inn. So he was born in a cave, a stable, with the animals around him. Who was the best protected person in the ancient world? It had to be Caesar Augustus in Rome. But the true emperor, the new emperor, arrives unprotected. Imagine a newborn baby 
too weak even to hold up his own head. And now wrapped up in swaddling clothes. Can you imagine an image of greater weakness, vulnerability? Who'd be the most powerful person in the ancient world? Caesar Augustus in Rome. The new emperor, the true emperor. Not powerful in that worldly way, but someone who's willing to be wrapped up and vulnerable in love. Who was the best fed person in the ancient world? It had to have been Caesar Augustus, snap his fingers, get any sensual pleasure he wanted. And most of us would think that's essential to the good life. But the true emperor, the new emperor, is not one who is fed, but who becomes food for the world, placed in that manger where the animals eat. One more detail from that story. We hear that an angel appeared to shepherds in these hills surrounding Bethlehem. Don't get romantic about the angels. The typical reaction to an angel in the Bible was fear. Imagine this reality from another dimension, this higher power suddenly breaking into this world. Fear is the proper reaction. The angel announces the good news and then it says, with that angel there appeared a stratias of angels. We often translate that word as host, but that word means army. Our word strategy and strategic come from that. With that angel there appeared an army of angels. Who had the biggest army in the ancient world? Caesar Augustus, which is why he was able to dominate it. You see what Luke is saying? His army is nothing compared to the army of this baby king, this stratias, this army of angels, who will fight not with the puny weapons of the world, but will fight with courage and with justice and with nonviolence. But the baby king has got the bigger army. There's a line in the prophet Isaiah that says, when the Messiah comes, it'll be like Yahweh bearing his holy arm. That meant rolling up his sleeve and bearing his powerful arm for conquest. Here's a great detail. That holy arm of Yahweh is the arm of the baby Jesus coming out of the crib. Who would have expected the power of God to arrive in that way? But the battle that begins here, this lining up of the two emperors, comes to its fulfillment on the cross. And it's there that this baby king, now come of age, will engage in his final battle. Part of the poetry of the Bible is that God is, is so unexpected. That God is love, that's a strange message. That's not a common message at all. That God would be you know, powerful and lordly and, and judgmental, that seems much more natural that God is love and therefore self-emptying, that God would come as a child as part of the grace and poetry of Christianity. Um, they got that, the first Christians saw that, and they kind of delighted, I think, in the poetry and the, and the paradox of it.
Palm Sunday, Jesus entered the holy city hailed as the son of David. He came as a Davidic warrior. Then as we saw, he went up to the temple precincts and there he picked a fight. As Holy Week unfolded, it's as though all the powers that had opposed him from the time of his birth came out in full force to meet him. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem is built over the very sites of the crucifixion and burial of Jesus. It commemorates and preserves, therefore, the battlefield where Jesus the warrior engaged in his ultimate struggle. When you read those densely textured passion narratives in the Gospels, you see all forms of human dysfunction on display. Jesus is met by hatred, by denial, by betrayal, by violence, by stupidity, by institutional injustice, by incomparable cruelty. It's as though all of human darkness comes out to meet him. And here on Mount Calvary, he does this final battle. But he responds not with more violence. Rather, he allows all of this darkness to wash over him. He takes upon himself the sins of the world. And he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's as though on the cross, Jesus interrupts that terrible play of violence and counter-violence of vengeance and counter-vengeance, which has bedeviled the human race from the beginning. It's as though God the Father takes that cross and he puts it in the works to interrupt this terrible process. Jesus takes away the sins of the world and that's how he fights. simply a failed revolutionary, an inspiring idealist, but as Albert Schweitzer said, ground under by the wheel of history. What prevents us from saying that is 
the stubborn and unnerving fact of the resurrection. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, simply from an historical standpoint, it's practically impossible to explain the emergence of Christianity as a messianic movement apart from the resurrection. If you wanted the clearest indication that someone was not the Messiah of Israel, it would be his death at the hands of Israel's enemies. We've seen the Messiah was supposed to gather the tribes. He was supposed to lead the nation and defeat the enemies of Israel. Therefore, the clearest indication possible that someone was not the Messiah was that he was crucified by the Romans. In the year 132, Bar Kokhba led a revolution. Many said he was the Messiah. They minted coins saying year one of Bar Kokhba. His revolution was put down. He was put to death by the Romans and nobody thinks he is the Messiah. But yet these first Christians proclaim precisely that. Paul says, Jesus Christos, Jesus Christos, simply his Greek version of Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah. The first disciples went to their deaths. They went to the ends of the world proclaiming that he is the Messiah of the Jews. How can you explain that? Apart from this fact of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Far too many contemporary scholars try to explain away the resurrection. Oh, it's a myth, it's a legend, it's a symbol. It's a sign that Jesus' cause goes on, that he's a great man who now lives with God. Come on. Nobody in the first century would have found any of that the least bit convincing. Can you imagine Paul tearing into Corinth and saying, I want to proclaim a dead man who's very inspiring. No one would have taken him seriously. Instead, what Paul said in Corinth over and over again was, anastasis, anastasis, resurrection, resurrection. That was the first great Christian message. The Gospels tell us that the risen Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room. He did two things. First, he showed his wounds. Don't forget what the sin of the world did. But then he says, Shalom, peace. This is the peace that the world can't give. God's love is more powerful than our greatest enemies, which are sin and death. This is precisely why Paul, once he had seen the risen Christ, could say, I am certain that neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities, neither height nor depth, nor any other power can ever separate us from the love of God. How does Paul know that? Because we killed God. And God returned in forgiving love. of the Latin patriarchs are the one who's the bishop of this church, which in some ways is the mother church of all of Christianity, Jerusalem, and that they're marching in in this military way into this church of, of nonviolence. So Jesus the warrior won his battle, but by fighting sin and death. And so it's kind of beautiful and appropriate that we accompany that with a military march, but it's not the uh, customary manner. It's this new way of fighting that was won right here on this spot. 
just love that image of Jesus the warrior because he's a weird warrior. He's a very unusual warrior, not in the expected way, but he's come to fight. He's come to fight the power of, um, of evil and the power of violence, the power of hatred. And the great revelation is that he fights with the weapon of the cross. And he's, you know, there's this mano a mano with Pontius Pilate going on. And that's, we saw that from the very beginning. It's Jesus and the Roman Emperor kind of going mano a mano. And at the end, Pilate thinks he's won. But in fact, it's Pilate who's been overwhelmed by the power of the cross. And that's proclaimed all over the world whenever the cross is held up. Because a cross? Why would you hold up a cross? If you're in the first century, you're holding up a cross, they think you're out of your mind. They think that you, you, you're a lunatic. You're holding up this brutal instrument of torture. But that's just the irony. It's an in-your-face. And it's a taunt. It's a taunt. Like, you think that scares us? You think we're afraid of that? The whole world's afraid of that. That's the most frightening thing you can imagine. And we're saying, I'm not afraid of it, because God's conquered it. resurrection, the first Christians understood that there was a new king of the nations. They therefore saw their task as announcing this fact to all the world. If someone today had a message that he wanted to get out as widely as possible, he would head for New York or Los Angeles or London. first believers in Jesus went, with a similar hope, to Rome. In the Roman Forum stands the Arch of Titus which was built to commemorate the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. You can see on the inside of the arch a depiction of Roman soldiers carrying the menorah from the temple. Those soldiers and those who made the arch probably thought that's the end of the Jewish religion. That's the end of the God of Israel. The supreme irony was that at that very moment, as people like Peter and Paul and their Christian companions came here to Rome, the God of Israel was coming in the person of Jesus to Rome and through Rome to all the world. St. Paul, once he had seen the risen Christ, understood this immediately. And that's why in all of his letters we find this phrase, Jesus Curios, Jesus is the Lord. Now to us that sounds like a rather bland spiritual statement. But in Jesus' time, those were fighting words. Because a watchword of the era was, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is the Lord. Caesar's the one to whom final allegiance is due. The message Paul had to the world was, no, not Caesar. Jesus Curios, Jesus is the Lord. 
the slopes of the Capitoline Hill, St. Mark lived. And Mark wrote around the year 70, the first gospel. It was written a few years after Mark's friends, Peter and Paul, had been brutally put to death. And Mark wrote this in the opening line of his gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Again, it sounds spiritual enough to us, but those two were fighting words. Euangelion, that's the Greek he used, glad tidings, was a word used to describe an imperial victory. When Caesar won a great battle, he sent messengers ahead with the word euangelion, there's good news about this victory. See what Mark is saying and how subversive it was. The real good news hasn't a thing to do with Caesar. It has to do with someone that Caesar put to death and that God raised from the dead. It has to do with Jesus Christ. And then, just to rub it in, he calls him Wiaos Tuteu, the Son of God. That was an imperial title. Caesar was the Son of God. Mark is saying, not Caesar, but rather Christ. And imagine now, he's in the belly of the beast. He's in the heart of the, of the empire that killed his friends. And he says these subversive revolutionary things. In the April of 2005, Pope Benedict XVI was elected. He came out here on the front loggia of St. Peter's, and then gathering around him came all the cardinals who had just elected him. The cameras caught the remarkably pensive expression of Francis Cardinal George of Chicago. When Cardinal George got home, the reporters asked him, what were you thinking of as you were looking out from the loggia of St. Peter's? Here's what he said. He said, I was gazing over toward the Circus Maximus, toward the Palatine Hill, where the Roman emperors once reigned, where they looked down upon the persecution of Christians. And I thought, where are their successors? Where's the successor of Julius Caesar? Where's the successor of Marcus Aurelius? And finally, who cares? But if you want to see the successor of Peter, he's standing right next to me, smiling and waving at the crowds. Jesus Christ is Lord. That means Caesar isn't Lord. That means none of Caesar's descendants are Lord. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, is the one to whom we owe final allegiance. And so Jesus fulfilled the four tasks of the Messiah. He gathered the tribes. He cleansed the temple. He dealt with the enemies of Israel. And now he is reigning as Lord of the nations. Yeah, I'm always moved when I come in here to the Coliseum. I always think um, we won. Is <laughs> that this was a place where Christians, not the earliest Christians, this didn't exist till the second century, but in later persecutions, Christians were uh, were tortured to death here in this place. You see, the spiritual is always more powerful than what's in the world. It doesn't seem that way. It always looks like a, oh, we can handle that. Like Pius the, the 12th, you know, said something critical of Stalin, and Stalin said, Pius the 12th, how many divisions does he have? Well, of course, the great irony is the successor of Pius XII defeated the successor of Stalin, and without a single division, but with the power of the Spirit. And that's what this place, to me, sort of speaks. 
Good Friday, the Pope comes in here carrying the cross. Because the cross was the symbol of Roman power. It meant, if you cross us, pun intended, that's where we'll put you. That's how you know, secular power tends to maintain itself through threats of violence. But then we use the symbol of the cross to taunt Rome and all of Rome's successors because from that cross came forth the victory of God, which is a victory of nonviolence and compassion and love and forgiveness. And that's more powerful than anything in the world because that's the power by which the world was created. God made the world not in violence but in love. And so love is always more enduring and powerful than hatred, even though it seems otherwise. Um, that's the great lesson of the church. Well, we hope you enjoyed that clip on the Warrior King of Christmas. If you'd like to watch the rest of that episode, as well as all the episodes from the Catholicism series, then come join us inside the Word on Fire Institute. You can sign up at wordonfire.institute, either yourself or maybe get a gift membership, a Christmas gift membership for a loved one, a family member, a friend, maybe your priest. We'd love to have you come and join us as we learn how to become better evangelists and use all of this great media to serve Christ and his church. Well, again, happy Advent, Merry Christmas, and we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.